And given the gospel reading for today, and especially the epistle reading for today, uh, I wanted to speak to you about how to judge success. The gospel reading always strikes me as like the placement of this particular incident in the gospel, I should perhaps say, uh, um, always strikes me as kind of an amazing juxtaposition, kind of an unexpected one even. Here we have the, 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 this particular incident with the epileptic follows immediately on uh, the heels of the transfiguration. So Jesus is just coming down from the mountain after having been transfigured. He's got Peter, James, and John with him. And there's this crowd that comes up uh, to him. And they're, and they're, just, they're just waiting for him. And, and so they approach the crowd. And then they discover that the disciples, who Jesus hasn't taken up with him, have not been able to cast out the demon that is afflicting this young man and causing him to experience epileptic seizures. And so that, that's kind of the starting point here. And then what I wanted to focus our attention on mostly today here uh, is uh, the epistle reading, because I, I just love this part of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Paul here, this is part of his first epistle to the Corinthians. He wrote two, possibly three letters to the Corinthians. Um, uh, and... Uh, and, and most uh, continually having to correct them. Uh, and in, the, in this first letter, he, he's, he's, he begins simply by, well, after his usual opening formalities, by rebuking them uh, right off the bat. He's like, look, there's some of you who say, I follow Paul. And others of you are saying, I follow Paulus and uh, Apollos. And others are saying, I follow Cephas, which is to say Peter. And, and yet others who are saying, I follow Christ. And you're divided. And it's like, what? Is Christ divided, Paul says? And, and it's that in this context that Paul is, uh, gives us this, um, um, this uh, amazing snippet, uh, a characterization of his ministry as an apostle. And both of these things speak to me, anyhow, uh, about our definition of success. We're all pretty, you know, it's all, it's all at least always in the back of our minds. Uh, am I a success? Have I been successful? Uh, and and what's my status report, if you will, in terms of uh, ha having achieved success? And the Christian definition that Paul gives here is kind of significantly different than what you would normally get uh, from the world around us. And he, I, I need to back up a little bit here. He's he's. Um, uh, and 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 sort of give some context for the, for the snippet of the epistle that we got. Uh, he says uh, a little further back in in First Corinthians chapter three, let no one deceive himself. If any among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become truly wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, 
for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. So this is the Christian starting point as opposed to what Paul is talking about here or, and, and, and comparing it to the wisdom of the world. Uh, the wisdom of the world is, is, as he says, foolishness with God. Um, and, and Paul's rebuke here, he's focused on, look, why are you boasting in your association with particular individuals, Paul or Cephas or Apollos? All of these men, Paul, Cephas, and Apollos, are yours in Christ. And in fact, you know, the, 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 uh, the world is yours in Christ. Life is yours in Christ. Things present, things to come, all of this is yours in Christ. And because you are Christ and Christ is God. So all of this worry about acquisition, about identification, about what we need, what we want to line ourselves up with, it's all completely misplaced if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Because what we, what we are scheduled to inherit, if we persevere, is everything in Christ, the universe. So, Paul says, how, do, how should we think? Here's, here's Paul's corrective. Let a man so consider us, think of us this way, in other words, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery, mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one should be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, Yet I am not justified by this, uh, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So the bottom line here is don't judge. We're not the ultimate judge. Only God is, and there's good reason for that, because God is the only one who sees the heart. Uh, Paul doesn't even judge himself, because he says, well, you know, I, I don't know of anything against myself, but that doesn't justify me. I could be, I could be completely ignorant of something that I've done that, that God knows about. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm not even concerned, really, about judging uh, I, I'm not worried about your judgment of me. I'm not worried about any court's judgment of me. He's He's been on the receiving end of a number of unjust judgments from the court systems of his day. Uh, so he, he, he's not worried about any of this. The only judgment that he's worried about is the judgment of God. Because that's the only one that ultimately matters. Now he goes on to say, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from one, from one from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast of it 
as if you had not received it. So he's transferring, he's, he's, the point, the reason he's focusing on himself is not because he's really cares about himself. He's already just said he doesn't, that he's not really caring about that. He's doing it for their sake. Like you guys are fighting over me and Apollos. So, okay, let's look at this in the ultimate context uh, so that we can get things right and actually see things properly. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and then he, he goes on to this radical egalitarianism that is at the heart of the Christian faith. He says, who makes you differ from another? That doesn't necessarily mean we're all the same. In fact, the, question, the, the, the answer to the question, who makes you differ from one another, would, I suppose, be God. He's the one who gives the different gifts. Um, uh, if, if indeed that's what he has in mind here, he may just be thinking about sort of our ontological standing before God. But, but uh, uh, and what do you have that you did not receive? Because if you're getting all boastful or even all self-condemning about, oh, I didn't receive very much, or I received a whole bunch from God. Well, who did you receive it from? (laughs) Well, from God. What did you have that you did not receive? Nothing. So why are you boasting about it? Why are you taking credit for it? Why are you caring whether you received a lot or a little? You got it from God. God's the one who gave it to you. He obviously had his reasons. Who are you to argue with God? So if you indeed received it, he says, why do you boast if you had not received, as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish, I, I wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. I love that. <laughs> it's like, uh, like, you've got everything that you need. You don't even need to consult with anybody. You're like kings. I wish you were. Because <laughs> at least I could be a king with you. Uh, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And it's been commented here that what Paul probably has in mind is the triumph of a king or a general uh, who's coming, when they come back in triumph, they lead, they, 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 they lead all of these, uh, they're followed by all of these riches that they've acquired. And the last thing in this, in this triumphal procession are the captives the slaves in chains being, being brought along to, to, to their spectacle to, so they can see the power of the general. So here Paul is saying, okay, well, look, if you want to think about us apostles, here's what to think about. Because he's, he's this is how God has displayed us. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak. But you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. 
this is what Paul focuses on. All of the things that in any worldly system of thought would be, would be looked upon as failures, as disasters, as things that are, if you want to point to God's favor, you wouldn't point to these things. Being hungry and persecuted and all these other things that Paul and the other apostles are all enduring. And what's his response? Being defamed, we bless. That's the response that the apostles have. And he goes on. I do not write these things to shame you. But as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. If you want to think about success, you need to know the pattern for success, the definition for success, the criteria by which you judge whether or not you are successful. Here, Paul is laying down that criteria. We hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, imitate me. It's a hard measure of success. None of this is stuff that we like. This is not our normal response to being defamed or to hardship. But this is what we're called to. The ending of the gospel, I think, is also illuminating in this regard. So here, Jesus is coming down. He encounters the failure of his own disciples. And what's his response? Well, it's obviously... There's a bit of frustration there. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but his ultimate response is to intervene, is to make up for that which is lacking, is to do what his disciples weren't able to do. And that's the other reason why this is our definition is and can be our definition of success. Paul begins with, look, everything's yours. We're all yours in Christ. If we are with Christ, we are inheritors in Christ of the entire universe. So why are you worrying about success? 
But the other element, the other end of that element is that as we experience failure in this world, judged by the world standards, you know, things that, that just go wrong or don't work, or even, you know, where we fail, where we have, you know, we, we, we are called to do something. I don't know, maybe like bless when people are, are defaming us. Uh, um, and we don't. If we are in Christ, if we continue in Christ, if we continue in that way of repentance that he is continually calling us to, that is the way of salvation, then as we fail, Christ fills in the gaps. As we fail and repent, Christ does what we should have done. And so we have both of these avenues of success, none of which lines up with the world's measures of success, but which give us hope, which encourage us as we encounter these difficult and hard and dangerous, uh, spiritually dangerous uh, um, phenomena. Because as we continue as Christ's disciples, so, you know, the disciples, they'd, they'd failed. They hadn't managed to cast out this particular demon. The boy, boy was still suffering epilepsy, but they were still Christ's disciples. And they did, and they and the, the boy's father did what they were, they needed to do in that circumstance, which was turn to Christ. It was embarrassing. It was kind of humiliating. But Christ intervened. And so, whether we succeed or fail, as long as we continue in repentance, as long as we continue to be Christ's disciples, we will not have that ultimate success taken away from us. Because we are identifying with, uniting ourselves with uh, Christ in our repentance. Our repentance acknowledges the goodness of God and that we have failed and come and fallen short of that. And it ultimately glorifies God because we are showing what we are repenting of to be the evil it is and turning towards the one who is good who is the only ultimate judge of goodness, the only ultimate standard of goodness, and who in his goodness and his love for us continually intervenes in, on our behalf to raise us up that we might share in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, now and ever into ages of ages. Amen.